Hey everyone, it's Eves. Just wanted to let you know that you'll be hearing an episode from me and an episode from Tracy V. Wilson today. Hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to this day in history class from HowStuffWorks.com and from the desk of Stuff You Missed in History Class. It's the show where we explore the past one day at a time with a quick look at what happened today in history. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson and it's November 23rd. The St. John's slave insurrection began on this day in 1733, making it one of the first of many slave insurrections in the Caribbean. Denmark had colonized the island of St. John in 1718. Unlike other European colonies in the Caribbean, the main purpose was the very lucrative sugar industry. This industry was also brutal and dangerous in terms of its working conditions, and it was devastating both to the enslaved African workforce and to the island's indigenous peoples. Although by the time the Danish colonized St. John, there weren't any indigenous people known to be living there due to earlier activity on the island. By 1733, there were more than a thousand enslaved Africans on the island of St. John, working on more than a hundred plantations that grew sugar, cotton, and other crops. The months leading up to this insurrection had been particularly difficult. The island had been struck by a drought, and then two hurricanes had followed during the summer, which destroyed a lot of the crops that had managed to survive that drought. There was also an insect plague. And like most of the other islands where chattel slavery was being practiced, St. John had an enslaved population that vastly outnumbered the white population. And it also had an increasing population of people known as Maroons. These were enslaved people who escaped into uncultivated parts of the island and made their homes there. A slave code was passed in 1733 that was extremely strict, and it was meant to cut down on how many people were able to do this. There were severe punishments for escaping or even thinking about escaping. As was usually the case, the people enslaved on St. John were from a number of different African tribes and nations, all of them with their own histories and languages and cultures. The people who launched this insurrection were Aquamus from what's now Ghana, and all of the people who participated in the insurrection were all part of this particular group. Their goal wasn't to liberate the entire island, though. It was to take power from the Danish. So on the night of November 23rd, they gained access to the fort at Coral Bay by delivering firewood, but concealed in these bundles of wood were cane knives. They used these knives to kill most of the soldiers on duty, many of whom were asleep, and they fired a cannon as a signal for the wider insurrection to begin. They also used drum signals to communicate during this as well. Over the next six months, about a quarter of the island's entire population was killed, including many other enslaved people who resisted. The Aquamus primarily fought with knives, and they also damaged and destroyed the island's plantations. Denmark sought help from other nations to try to put down this insurrection, including Britain and France, who also had colonies and forces nearby. After a major defeat of the Aquamu force in May of the following year, the Danish force regained control of the island in August. The European forces slaughtered the rebelling Africans, some of whom took their own lives rather than being captured or killed. Although the damage was extensive, the plantations were very quickly rebuilt, and within a few years, St. John had an even larger enslaved population than it had had before. 
Denmark abolished slavery in its Caribbean colonies in 1848, and St. John is now United States territory, having been sold to the United States along with the islands of St. Croix and St. Thomas in 1917. Today, they are the U.S. Virgin Islands. Although the island's residents do not have the right to vote for president or members of Congress. Thanks to Christopher Hasiotis for his research work on today's episode and to Casey Pegram and Chandler Mays for their audio work on the show. You can subscribe to the Stay in History class on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever else you get your podcasts. You can tune in tomorrow for a famous disappearance with a lot of money. Hi, everyone. I'm Eves, and welcome to this Day in History class a podcast where we dust off a little piece of history and place it ever so gently on your brain shelf every day. The day was November 23, 1883. Jose Clemente Orozco was born to Irenia Orozco and Rosa Flores in Zapotlan, El Grande, Mexico, now Ciudad Guzman. Orozco went on to become a renowned caricaturist and painter known for his fresco murals. Orozco's family moved to Guadalajara in 1886, and by 1888, they had made their way to Mexico City. His passion for art blossomed there, as he admired the art in the workshop of Jose Guadalupe Posada, a printmaker whose work included political and social commentary. As he passed the workshop on his way to and from school, he became fascinated by the style of Posada's illustrations. Orozco studied art in Mexico City, taking classes at the San Carlos Academy of Fine Arts. By 1898, his parents had sent him to the country to study agriculture for pragmatic reasons. He studied at the School of Agriculture in San Jacinto and attended the National Preparatory School with the intent of studying architecture later. But in 1903, his father died of typhus, so Orozco began working to support his mother and siblings and pay his way through college. He took a job as an architectural draftsman and hand-tinted post-mortem portraits. He wasn't as passionate about agriculture, math, and architecture as he was about painting. Orozco also injured his eye and lost his left hand in an accidental explosion, so he began studying art again at the San Carlos Academy. By 1910, Orozco's artwork was getting attention. That year, some of his drawings got recognition at an exhibition commemorating the centenary of Mexican independence from Spain. The Mexican Revolution, which was unfolding around this time, affected his artistic viewpoint. Opposition to the regime of President Porfirio Diaz spread, and political and social turmoil escalated as power changed hands. Orozco participated in a student strike, and he began creating illustrations for radical newspapers. He painted with black in what he said were, quote, the colors exiled from Impressionist palettes. He depicted locals who went to the bars and brothels in his neighborhood. Informed by the context of the Mexican Revolution and the culture of Mexico City, he emphasized injustice and corruption. One of the artists who influenced his work was Julio Rueles a Mexican symbolist who created dark, hallucinatory images of mythological characters, the subconscious, and his own tormented face. While in Orizaba, working for the revolutionary newspaper La Vanguardia, he met David Alfaro Siqueiros and Diego Rivera, who, along with him, would later be known as the Big Three in Mexican muralism. 
Dr. Atul, also known as Gerardo Murillo, edited La Vanguardia. Dr. Atul had met Orozco at the San Carlos Academy years earlier and inspired him to embrace Mexican themes in his art. After his solo exhibition, House of Tears, received a lot of negative criticism, he turned to the U.S. to find new opportunities. He got to the U.S. in 1917, where customs took a lot of his paintings because they were deemed indecent. After spending two years in the States working on his art, he returned to Mexico. His career in muralism began in 1923, when he started painting his first murals at the National Preparatory School in Mexico City. Siqueiros and Rivera were also doing murals here. This same year, Orozco married Margarita Valladares and helped found the Union of Revolutionary Painters, Sculptors, and Engravers. As he completed more murals, his work received more praise and international attention. In 1927, he went back to the U.S. where he found inspiration in the artwork of European artists like Francisco Goya and was influenced by the impact of the Great Depression. He stayed in the U.S. until 1934. The epic of American civilization, a cycle of murals that he completed at Dartmouth College, was a highlight of his art career in the U.S. Orozco went back to Mexico after he left the U.S., and he stayed there throughout most of the 1940s, constantly adding to his already robust body of work by creating new murals exhibiting his idealistic and pessimistic perspectives. He painted murals in the Palace of Fine Arts in Mexico City, the University of Guadalajara, the Governor's Palace, the Auspicio Cabanas, and the Palace of Justice in Mexico City, among other locations. He also created smaller works like engravings, easel paintings, and portraits. He continued to work on frescoes until he died of heart failure at the age of 65. Even though he faced censorship and financial struggles, he played a key role in invigorating the public arts movement and has been honored for exposing Mexican art to a wider international audience. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. Know any fellow history buffs who would enjoy the show? You can share it with them. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at T-D-I-H-C podcast. And you can send your thoughts or comments to us at thisday at iheartmedia.com. We're here every day, so you know where to find us. Bye.